Well, good morning. So as Scott mentioned, today is our, uh, today's our second birthday. Yeah. We are two years old. That means we get to experience and be part of the Terrible Twos over this next year. And I want to talk a little bit about the Terrible Twos in the message, so I won't, uh, have you, I won't do that now. But I want to encourage you all to stand up, and uh, we're going to have the lights come up and give you a chance to meet and greet some folks around you. And since we're two years old today, uh, I thought a good appropriate question is, how long have you been attending Hope? Ready? Go. All right, thanks for doing that. If you could uh, grab your seats and you can continue that conversation after uh, worship. So we are excited since today is our second birthday. We look for any excuse to have food in the house. And so uh, after worship, you can continue that conversation because on the second birthday, we've decided that you should have uh, pretzel nuggets with, I think, is it cheese sauce? It is cheese? Yeah. All right. Perfect, all right? So we'll be dipping pretzel nuggets into cheese, and you can continue those conversations. And I saw there are a lot of nuggets back there, okay? So, uh, and there's also sandwiches as well, I heard. Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's turned it into a real party. Uh, so it's our second birthday. Thanks for that. Uh, how many of you, just raise your hand, how many of you were here on our opening Sunday two years ago? All right, a bunch of you, you're still here. We didn't chase you away. That's terrific, all right? Uh, two years ago, uh, for those of you who were not here, uh, we arrived in Mount Laurel believing that a community of faith like this one can make a difference in our world. And, and I would argue that we are beginning to do that as we move forward in this community here in Mount Laurel. Two years ago, some things I reflected on about two years ago, two years ago, our culture and our country was divided. There were political extremes, Democrats and Republicans. There was church division. The United Methodist Church, our denomination, is experiencing division between the traditionalists and the progressives. There was controversy within the Catholic Church as well. Uh, economically, the middle class began to become non-existent, and maybe that had already happened, but it became we became more aware of it about two years or so ago. There's been social division during that two, uh, two years ago. There was attitudes towards race, gender identity, policing, gender equality, and even more. There's been this incredible divide. And over these past two years, as we've been uh, in Mount Laurel, first in the middle school and now here in the community center, over the past two years, the divide has expanded. That's our current reality. Uh, some things that I think have, uh, that not just me, but I've been looking at as I've been reading that are causing that divide is that uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, have become a place to throw grenades and incite division and add to the discord. Uh, media outlets that uh, throw fuel onto the fires of division. And then one of the most interesting things that I read in an article uh, just, just last month is that even the marketplace has been polarized. 
that uh, this uh, author noticed that Walmart and the dollar stores are doing incredibly well. And at the same time, stores that sell $700 handbags and high-end watches and designer workout clothing are doing well also. But in the middle, department stores, malls, uh, local shops are closing. That the high end and the low end are doing well while the middle is becoming non-existent. And so as I was reading this article about the marketplace, uh, this author then went on to share some of the things that are fueling this divide. And, and he mentioned that it has a lot to do with our thinking and the way we process things. So he talked about that if we have binary thinking, which means we have this either-or mentality, that we believe that everything is either A or B, true or false, that leads towards this division. It leads towards the polarization, leads towards the extremes. It, it removes the middle. Uh, if we have this absolute, that we believe that one preferred, one preferred value is an absolute value, like what I believe about an issue is the only belief possible with that issue, then we're creating or adding to the divide, adding to the polarization, taking away the middle. Uh, if we view uncertainty as a weakness, or in church language, if we view uncertainty as sin, so it's become unsafe to say, I just don't know. If we're always looking for evidence that supports our side and our side only, in other words, if we only watch one TV network news station and not watch both extremes, then we're adding to the polarization. If we assume that our opponents or someone's opponent is motivated by bad faith, if we're viewing the other side as the enemy, then we add to it. If we're only seeking approval for our own in-group, then we are adding to a side. So if your social media followers or those you follow think the same as you, then you are guilty of seeking approval from an in-group. Interesting, interesting thoughts as I was reading about the loss of the middle. And so it led to what does all this mean? That the middle is disappearing, like I said, and if you're if you're looking for what's missing, it's that there are only extremes left in our world. And that as the, the extremes continue to expand, the middle gets lost in that expanse. It means that being in the middle is harder than ever. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to begin the message. That was all just intro. So God, I thank you for this time, and I pray, God, that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be open to your thoughts and your ideas. God, give us a clear sense of how you're speaking to us in these moments. God, our desire is to uh, not just see you working in our lives selfishly, God, but God, that we believe that we can have an impact on our world. And so, God, I pray that you would begin to work in and through us as individuals and as this 
community of faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're two years old. In the first year, for those of you who are here, in the first year we were, uh, we were newborns. Uh, we had to depend on others for our existence, and so we were in many ways helpless like a newborn baby. So a lot of folks from Voorhees came over and helped us out. And I remember at the six-month mark, when we were only six months old, we had our first volunteers from Voorhees say, hey, I did my six months, it's time for me to go back. And I remember that was kind of a stirring moment for us. It was like, wait, they're leaving us. We're only a year old. Then our second year, we learned to walk. Uh, when I say I, we learned to uh, walk, I'm saying that during our second year, during the year we were just experiencing, uh, which is, you know, how do you count that, right? Are you one? Like, you don't become one until you're, you're actually over one, right? Anyway, it's always weird, right? So you celebrate... <laughs> You celebrate your first birthday when you've already been a year old, right? So you're celebrating what happened, right? Anyway, all right, so we learned to walk. We took our first steps towards autonomy and uh, opportunity. I would say we had our first Mount Laurel-specific events during this last year. We started doing things like building a bunny and Advent, what are those things? Gingerbread houses. And we saw families come in for the first time because of that. We, we used to only partner with folks like Chick-fil-A. During our second year, we started to break up with them. Only because we wanted to be more independent because we're two and we're, now we're terrible twos. And so what does this year look like, being terrible twos, is we are going to learn to expand our possibilities, which means that sometime during this time, we're probably going to touch an oven that we shouldn't have touched right? We're going to pull on a plug that we shouldn't have pulled on. We're going to get yelled at maybe even, right? Get told, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. But we're in our terrible twos. I'm looking forward to that. So, uh, uh, but at the same time, in our terrible twos, we still are in this culture that is divided, right? There's these extremes at two sides. And, and, and where do we play? What's the spot that we're supposed to be in? Uh, I want to look, we're going to look at a letter written by Paul to a church that Paul had never visited. Uh, the Colossians were a young, new church, and Paul had heard about this Colossian church and had heard about the things that were going on there, and he wrote a letter to them, and the letter starts out, the first few chapters, is, is that this church was experiencing some doctrinal disagreements. Uh, one, one of those disagreements is that there were, there were people who had taught there that Jesus wasn't God, he was just sort of superhuman. He was kind of like an Avenger, I guess, right? They, they imagined that he was a superhero, that, that he was human and had some, like, God in him, but he wasn't really God. He was just superhuman. That was kind of the idea that they had. And so because he wasn't true, because Jesus wasn't truly God, then he wasn't really enough to save humanity. He was just like... It was a good start, but it wasn't enough. And so that was kind of the teaching that was going on in that Colossian church. And Paul heard about it, and he wanted to speak and address that. And so for the first three chapters, he talks about how, how the, the, that the church, or excuse me, that Jesus was, uh, uh, is, is, is all that we need. That Jesus, a belief in Jesus, Jesus is God, Jesus was God, and only Jesus is needed. And that new life is possible through Jesus alone, and Jesus is enough. And that this one idea, Jesus, 
can change the world. That was what Paul was talking about in the first several chapters in Colossians. So we're going to jump in at the end of the book, though, and look at Colossians chapter 3 and just read just a few verses. And the first is up on the screen. Uh, Paul writes about this big idea of Jesus changing the world, and then he says this. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now the ancient world in the first century, especially here in this area, was filled with barriers, it was filled with division, and it was a polarized culture. My, doesn't that sound familiar? Paul, uh, Paul references it right here in this opening sentence. He says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. The word Gentile there would be better translated Greek. The Greeks looked down on the barbarians. Notice he, Paul mentions barbarians. If, and, and this is how the Greeks identified who was a barbarian. If you weren't a Greek, you were a barbarian, right, you get it? So that was, that was, they had a really easy definition for that. If you're Greek, you're Greek. If you're not Greek, you're barbaric. So Paul says, uh, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, oh, Jews, wait a second, let's stop there. Jews looked down on every other nation because they were chosen and favored by God above all others. And so Paul says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric or uncivilized. We have to stop there because the word uncivilized also can be translated Scythian. Now, Scythians, get this, were the lowest of the barbarians. No kidding, all right? As a matter of fact, the Greeks called the Scythians a little short of beasts. So you see, there were Greeks, and if you weren't Greek, you were barbaric. But while you were barbaric, there were also those that were so barbaric, they were so savage, these Scythians, they were beyond just barbaric. Paul says it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're a Jew or a Greek. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're barbaric or uncivilized or even Scythian. In this new life, if you're slave or free, oh, we have to stop there again. In the ancient law, a slave wasn't even classified as a human. No rights, not even allowed to marry. They were considered tools that breathe. Paul says, in this new life, it doesn't matter. In this new life, the cultural extremes are not going to exist, Paul says. The social barriers can be torn down. The polarization and the deep division, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't that sound so 21st century desirable. So Paul goes on and says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves 
with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Imagine how our world would look if these virtues were our first priority. How about your work world? Or your home world? Or your school world? How would your world look differently if you practice these virtues as a first priority? Now, I have a lot to say in this message. Uh, one of the things that I notice that happens, it's, it's God's way of working in these messages. And I'm convinced more and more, at every Sunday that I preach, I am more and more convinced it's a God endeavor. Uh, when this was planned months ago, uh, at the time, I was like going, eh, okay, that's good. We're going to do this series on together. We've got this week and next week, and so we're going to talk about what it means to be together. And practically, it works out really well, because as Scott mentioned, next week, uh, uh, we can't use this building. It's the one week a year when somebody trumps our attendance in here. Believe it or not, it's about 50 dogs uh, are going to be in this building. Uh, I don't exactly know what they do. I stopped in here last Sunday just because I was curious, or last year. Uh, if you remember last year, we went to Chick-fil-A, and that's where we worshiped. And uh, I dropped a sign off that said, hey, we're not in the building just so nobody got confused. There's not a chance they would have been confused, all right? <laughs> because there were dogs of all shapes and sizes here with their owners, and they're doing some kind of sniffing contest or something. I, I don't know what it was. Uh, I didn't ask. I was, again, I was trying to go over to Chick-fil-A, but I left the sign out that said, Hope's not meeting today, and it was pretty clear. All right. But so, so we knew practically we weren't going to have this space, and we're doing this series that we're, called to, we're calling together. What does it mean to be together? And one of the things we talked about is, is well, this idea of, of from, from Colossians is good, and next week there's another uh, 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 theme that we're mentioning, and that works out really well. And I was really pleased with that, and that was good. Well, then, all of a sudden, God does meddling, all right, as, we're, as I'm preparing these things and as we're putting this together. And, and at first, I was, I was like, God, what am I going to say about this? I don't know what to say. There's like, I don't have enough. And then somewhere between Monday and today, uh, uh, this morning at 6 a.m., when I'm in my office, I'm like, all right, God, now there's too much. And how am I going to get through? And I just wasted three minutes telling you that, all right? <laughs> But I don't want to go too fast through these, but yet I want to move along. I want to encourage you to take these verses home with you from Colossians chapter 3. Because what if mercy were a hallmark of our reactions to the circumstances we face throughout the week? How would that change your world? What if our words were influenced by kindness? How would that change or affect our friendships? How might it change our social media comments? How might our political or social opinions change if we demonstrated humility toward people who expressed a different agenda or different idea? How would a gentle response be perceived in a hostile environment? And what does gentleness look like at work or school? 
and patience by far the greatest virtue needed from this list in our world today. And also probably, likely, the most difficult to practice faithfully. But how is patience needed in your life? How could you practice patience? And what if a whole community of faith lived like this? How might it change the world? I would argue that those virtues that I just shared with you, that Paul shares with us, it is not possible to live in either or any extreme and practice them. You can't sit in the extreme when it comes to mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. I would argue it pushes you to the middle. pushes you to the middle. Paul's not done though. Verse 13, it's up on the screen. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So in other words, Paul's saying, hey, you can practice all the mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience you want. It's still not going to be enough. We're not always going to get it right, and you're still going to need to forgive people. And just to be clear, Paul says you need to do this when you forgive. Forgive anyone who offends you. There is no selection process here. Anyone and everyone. He also makes it clear that we should imitate Jesus in our forgiveness practice, so that also adds and amps up the type of forgiveness we need to be demonstrating. Paul challenges us with this idea of forgiveness, that there's no measurable limit to forgiveness. And just in case you think I'm pushing this to an extreme that isn't really what Paul intended or Jesus intended. There's a scripture in Matthew chapter 18 where, where Jesus is sharing with his disciples about forgiveness. And Peter says, he says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And there's a whole uh, 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 a litany of, uh, of ideas about what Peter was getting at. But he says seven times. Like, should I forgive someone seven times, Lord? And some people suggest that, that three was the, was the correct number in Jewish law. And so what Peter was doing is saying, hey, three is what those folks do. But as your followers, Jesus, how about if we do, how about if we do seven? Let's make that our policy. All right, we're going to forgive someone seven times. That's twice as many plus one than what the Old Testament law says. So we'll do seven. Someone sins against us, you're forgiven. You sin again, we'll forgive you. It's only two. We're going to go all the way to seven. And then Jesus responds and says, no, not seven times, where some people think, some commentaries think that, that Peter might have went, oh, good because that seven is outrageous. <laughs> like, we'll never, I, I, there's no way I could forget seven times. He says, no, not seven, Peter. He says, but 70 times seven. I don't know what that number is. Thanks, good job. So 490, I would argue that what Jesus is suggesting to Peter is that there's no measurable limit to forgiveness. 
that anyone and everyone who's on our list should be forgiven in the same way that Jesus has forgiven us and forgiven me. So that was where the message was headed, and I was good with that. And then Paul gets this thing, he says, that at first I just thought was kind of a, not a throwaway, it's a good idea, but then I realized the extent of where Paul was going with this, the idea of a community living together in a world that's divided, and this pushed me uh, to, it really did, the Holy Spirit began meddling in my own heart is that, notice it says, make allowance for each other's faults. Make allowance for each other's faults. Now, other translations use the word, get this, put up with. Put up with. And I was trying to understand that Greek meaning. The King James Version translates it, forbear one another. To bear one another, to put up with one another. So I tried to think of some illustrations to kind of explain that Greek word, and I came up with a couple, and the, uh, actually I came up with two, and they were really good, and then, and then God put a third one this morning in my heart. And so the first one is, uh, many of you know that Judy Lone is my assistant at, uh, at, 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 at Hope, and she puts in uh, hours above and beyond what she's supposed to, to handle me. And here's what works so well with Judy being an assistant to Pastor Rick, is that Judy puts up with me. She makes allowance for me. She did it just this morning. We're out in the, see, I am forgetful. I have a lot of things that, I, that are blowing around in my head, and I get lost. And so a few weeks ago, someone said, hey, could you, uh, could you let Erica know we need water? You know when I did that? Two weeks later, all right? Not because I don't think we need water here in this building. I just don't remember that. I just, it just leaves my brain, all right? And so Judy this morning out in the lobby said, uh, Rick, I know you're not going to be in tomorrow. And I said, actually, Judy, I'm going to be in. She goes, all right, I'm not going to talk to you then because I know you're not even paying attention to what I'm saying. That's not what she said, but that's what I knew she was thinking. Because she understands. She knows my limitations. She knows where I'm able to go in my brain and in my personality and all those things. She makes allowance for Rick. She's not trying to change that. She's just accepting it in a sense. Now, it's not just the idea of accepting it, because now we can, if we think of the word as just uh, forbearing or, or putting up with that we just ignore what's happening, that's not what it means either. So then the next illustration for that was, is my wife, Kelly, who's here as well. Now, if you think Judy has made allowances, <laughs> oh, let me tell you, nothing compared to what 30 years of marriage to this person can make allowances for, okay? So the other day, I'm in the kitchen, and I said to Kelly, I realize I'm insensitive. You guys don't know that. I work really hard to not be in front of you, but I'm really an insensitive person, all right? I, I'm just kind of, 
I can be a jerk. I don't mean to be, but it's just, it, I'm just insensitive, right? And I, don't, I just don't think about what someone else might be feeling. And so uh, I have to work really hard to not be like that, which, which is a good thing. I'm not suggesting I shouldn't work really hard like that. But I was in the kitchen, and I said something that was insensitive. Sadly, I don't remember what it was now. That's how insensitive I am. I don't remember what it was. But I knew that it was insensitive because Kelly said, that was really mean. That's how I knew. And I said, I go, have I always been like this or am I getting worse? Because I was concerned. And she said, no, you've always been like that. Which then put concern for her because why would she be attracted to that? Which you can ask her about later. So here's that idea, that word then, is that Kelly is learning to make allowances for my faults, which are many. Because she cares about me, because she loves me, and she's going to push me towards being better at those faults. And while, and while we're doing that, while she's doing that, while she's pretty close to faultless, I'm making allowances for her as well. So Paul says, make allowance for each other's faults. Now, again, that was really good. I had that. That was nothing close to me personally. But then I had this revelation. So um, I have a friend who has been testing a friendship, my, a friendship that he and I have. It's no one who's here. It's no one who's part of hope. You don't have to try to guess who it is. It's not Chris. <laughs> And I'm having to learn how to forgive. And I didn't want to because I know it's going to continue. I would expect the behavior to change, but I'm also seeing that it may be a fault or it may be a weakness in character or it may be something that I need to put up with to extend and deepen and continue the relationship so that I can help to lead this friendship. Currently, it's as far as they're able to go. And so what does it mean for me to make allowance? I don't know yet. I just know that this morning... It became real. Make allowance for each other's faults. I would argue that you cannot do that from the extreme. You have to be pushed to the middle. We need to put up with each other's faults. We'll need to practice mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And it'll force us away from any extreme and push us towards the middle. And then Paul continues and he says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Clothed in love. Another, I think the message version calls it, it's the perfect bond. 
It's the glue that holds all of us together. We cannot do these things without love. It's not possible if we don't genuinely love the people who we're trying to be uh, merciful towards and kind towards and humble and gentle and patient and forgiving and forbearing. It can't be done from an extreme. It can only be done from the middle. You can't love from an extreme. You can't love with an oppo- from an opposing side. You can only love from the middle. The Greek word for peace that Paul uses literally means to function as an umpire. How about ref? Bob, would ref work? function as a ref, all right? All right, that's what the word there that Paul's using. He says that peace, uh, uh, what's, what's, uh, let the peace that comes from Christ umpire in your heart. Let the peace that comes from Christ referee in your heart. So in circumstances, what does it look like for Jesus to referee in your heart. Peace comes from not working towards having all opinions the same. But it does come from resolving differences. Our world is not going to get better on its own. That's it's a reality. But this article that I read that I started with that I referenced talking about the middle had this one thing to say that I thought this was speaking to the church. It said, although this will be extremely hard to pull off, he was talking about finding the middle. He was saying that, that in, in the marketplace, it was really a marketplace article, that there's these two extremes where Walmart and Dollar General are doing great, and at the same time, that high-end watches and, and $700 handbag stores are doing great. He said, if someone can find the middle, He says, the middle is wide open for the taking. I would argue the same for the church. The middle's wide open for the taking if we can figure out how to do it. It's not impossible. It's just that almost no one has figured out how to crack it in this culture. I would suggest the strategy for this world is to imitate Jesus in compassion and love and forgiveness, to let love guide our lives and have peace rule our hearts, that we can decide that what we make what we do more personal, more generous, more empathetic, and even more human, and that there's a world that is hungering for it. And that together, the church of Jesus, living in between the extremes, living in between the chaos and the fighting, that the church of Jesus together can change our world. And how we choose to live together can be appealing, it can draw people in, and they will desire something different, something that is making a world a difference. So the band's going to come up and they're going to, parts of the band are going to come up and they're going to sing a uh, song for us. I want to read to you from the message version. It's not on the screen. I just want you to hear it. It says this. It's the same verses that Paul mentions in Colossians. He says, all the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non you know, I'm not going to read those words. Let me read words for the 21st century. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Republicans, Democrats, 
gay, straight, traditional, progressive, black, white, male, female. Paul says those old fashions we can make obsolete. Because from now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. He goes on and says, so chosen by God for this new life of love. Dress in the wardrobe that God picked out for you. Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Quiet strength. Discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else, put on love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. And let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other and in step with each other. And so, God, I pray that that would be our desire. And, God, I am so aware that this is a real-time message for us this morning. That I believe it's possible that the Holy Spirit has been doing some meddling in our hearts as well as my heart, God. And I'm confess that this morning. God, that mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience are not possible without love. And that God, forgiving and putting up with or bearing, forbearing others is only possible with love. And God, we are, may have been drawn to an extreme that has pushed us away from someone. And God, it's possible that we need to seek forgiveness for not living your way. We've embraced an extreme or a side or we labeled something other than Jesus. And God, maybe we've held back on offering forgiveness because they're just going to do it again. And God, I pray that we would allow you to referee our hearts so that, God, we would experience your peace. And we thank you, Jesus.